coming up next, he is a regular, another genius. You will find him on many of our podcasts. He is the wonderful Paul Hutchinson. 9pm, early December, a starless no moon night, and I am being driven from home by my father, driven from home into a dark wood. My father has been asked, has been tasked all week by my mother. A real tree must come home, and soon, a real Christmas tree. And by getting a tree, he means stealing a tree. But he doesn't call it stealing. No, he points out that there are lots of trees, that no one will miss one tree, that my mother wants a real Christmas tree this Christmas, that it's probably a rich farmer with plenty of trees to spare, that it's Christmas time and that's a time for people to be generous, even rich farmers. But he laughs at that one because he knows we are planning a crime. In the run-up to Christmas, my father is teaching me a lesson. What do you do when your wife says, I'd like a real tree this year? You go and get her one for her, for the family. And what can be wrong with wanting to please your family? But for some reason, he doesn't want to pay for a real Christmas tree. Money might not grow on trees, but Christmas trees do grow in a field six miles from where we live. So we are driving in a mustard yellow Volkswagen estate, lights on along a bumpy dirt path, tools clanging in the back, driving from home into a dark wood. He stops and we get out. He opens the hatch back of the car, examines his stealing gear an axe, a saw, a torch, some rope, two pairs of gloves. He hands me a set of gloves. I feel honoured and illicit. My father and I are going to rob a forest. Together, we are going to steal a tree. It is, I must confess, very exciting. I am 15 I have been handed a pair of my father's rough work gloves and we are now walking with purpose into a dark wood. It's hard to see anything outside the beam of the torch. I slip several times, unused to skulking at night in a field, not too far from the car, he says. We don't want to carry it for miles. I know it is if I do this every day. Steal a tree from a farmer. Steal a tree from a farmer who may or may not be rich, who may or may not be feeling generous at Christmas time, who may or may not be keeping watch over his flock of fir trees. My father shines his torch with intent. He knows what he wants. A Christmas tree for the family. A family tree, a tree of significance, a tree to place in the small living room of our small terrace house, a tree to cover with tinsel, balls and lights. The bloody lights that need bloody tested every bloody year, as my father was prone to saying. He had no patience for fiddly lights. My mum loves Christmas, wants us all to be a perfect family and not to fight. I don't ask if she is ever disappointed, if it meets her Everest expectations. My father stops and says, hold the torch steady, there. He kneels down as if to pray before the tree he is about to kill 
to steal, and then he starts to saw. He is physical for a living, and so he gets to it, cutting into the tree. Keep the torch steady, he says. My hands are shaking with the cold and the nerves. These gloves are not for warmth. They are for stealing trees and male bonding. Sorry, I say, and hold the torch with both hands. As I watch out for police, farmers, nocturnal animals, none of which I want to see. I want to pee, but I have a job. Hold the torch steady for my father, who's cutting down a Christmas tree six miles from home in a dark wood. Watch yourself, he says, as the tree starts to wobble. It's at least 10 feet high, long, big, whatever the term is. He gently, firmly holds the tree and guides it to the cold ground. What do you think, he says? Put the torch on her. The tree is now she. It's quite a bonding moment, father and son gazing at a felled Christmas tree. He looks at me and smiles. He is proud of himself, providing for his family. He is happy at this moment, creating memories for father and son. I smile back then, look at the tree. It's wrong. It feels exciting and great and scary, but something is wrong. I kneel down and touch the tree. My anxiety is growing, not about getting caught, although that's still there, but of having to say that I think my father is wrong, that he has done the wrong thing for his family. Dad, you're wrong, I want to say, but I never ever want to say, Dad, you're wrong, it doesn't feel right. Suddenly there is movement in the bushes, we both turn swiftly. I am imagining a farmer with a shotgun and a frown and a growling dog, but it is an unseen creature out in the prow, more afraid of us than aggressive. I stand up and brace myself. My dad has a huge grin on his face. I'm about to wipe that grin off his face. I say, Dad, I don't think this is right. What says my dad? It's fine. No one will miss it. Your mum will love it. Look at the size of it. It's fine. It's not fine, I say. It's not right. You shouldn't have cut this tree down. He is still smiling, but slightly less broadly. Well, we can't uncut the tree. It's down now. We may as well take it home. No, I say, feeling sick to my giblets. You shouldn't have cut this Christmas tree down because, because it's not a Christmas tree. My father looks at me, crouches in the starless night, takes the torch and scans the tree. Balls, he says. He was not talking about Christmas decorations. To be fair, it was a very dark, starless, no moon night. To be fair, we are both from Belfast and don't know our trees that well. To be fair, when you're trying to steal a tree late on, six miles from home, your vision can be impaired. To be clear, my dad had cut down a tree that he thought was a Christmas tree, but was not in the end a Christmas tree. Balls, he said again. And then he burst out laughing. Your mum would not have been happy. It's close, but it's no Christmas tree. And so we tracked on again, looking for an actual Christmas tree, checking with each other when we found a whole field of them, waiting to be cut down, waiting to be felled. 
we chose our tree, cut it down and dragged it back to the car. It was too big to fit into the back of the car. So we throw it onto the roof rack prepared earlier for such an eventuality and tie it down the rope. My dad laughs all the way home, thinking about the wrong tree and what the farmer would think seeing a not Christmas tree cut down and left to die with its brothers and sisters. Maybe it would hit the news, my dad said, and he laughed. It would not hit the news. The troubles were hitting the news. We arrived home to my mother, who is not happy that we had gone to steal a tree. In her mind, she is already in the future, seeing the tree decorated, already dressed divinely, the tinsel, the checked lights, the balls, and the smiling angel, the smiling angel on top of the tree, on top of the stolen Christmas tree, the smiling angel blessing her mucky-shoed Earth holy family. Amen. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul. What did you do every other year for a tree? Uh, we got into the groove of real Christmas trees, but my mum said you have to actually buy them. Uh, right. The family conscience, your mother? Of many things, yes. Yes, yes. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much. That was great. Really appreciate it. Now, this is her second time telling a story, and we are absolutely delighted. I know she's in the States, but I can't remember where exactly you are. So you can take it away, Catherine. Happy holidays from Central Illinois. It was Easter Sunday, 2010. My husband, Mike, uh, my twin five-year-old sons and I were with my sister and her family, um, her two children and her husband in Michigan. We had spent the day with extended family celebrating Easter, uh, complete with Easter baskets and a hunt for eggs left by the Easter Bunny. Like many holidays, we had eaten a family meal at some non-typical time and had as well as snacked throughout the day. So it was early evening and we found ourselves trying to decide if we owed the children another meal. Begrudgingly, we admitted to ourselves that we did. But we were tired and we didn't wanna cook, so we went online and we ordered pizza to be delivered. The time for the pizza to arrive came and went and the children began to notice that they had not been fed. So they were asking where was their pizza? At first, we reassured them that sometimes pizza delivery takes a little longer than expected, especially on holidays, um, but that didn't keep them for long. After a short while, as children will, they asked again about the pizza. And it was at this point that my husband, Mike, uh, apparently bored and needing some amusement, began to make up increasingly absurd theories about where our pizzas were and what had befallen the pizza delivery guy. Mike had a ready audience and his sweet and inquisitive sons who responded to each possible explanation with more sincere questions and ultimately concern for the fate of the pizza delivery guy. At first, Mike told the boys that the pizza guy was probably lost, which made them concerned for their pizza and for the guy. Uh, when he had sufficiently teased them about that scenario, Mike suggested that maybe the pizza delivery guy had sold our pizzas to the higher, highest bidder. The obvious injustice of such an act shook my son's faith in humanity. So after a bit, Mike moved on to the theory that maybe the pizza deliveries guy's car had broken down and he had used our pizzas to pay for a tow. The final straw came when Mike had the boys considering the sad possibility that perhaps the Easter Bunny 
after a long and tiring day, grumpy and hungry, had mugged the pizza delivery guy and stolen our pizzas. I shut that one down as quickly as I could and we set about finding something else to feed the children. And the pizza delivery guy never did show up. So fast forward eight months to a few days before Christmas. My sons and I are leaving our local mall and they see Scanta in the parking lot scurrying back towards the mall entrance. As we are driving away in our minivan, because all of life's toughest questions must be asked of mothers by their children from the back of loud moving minivans, my boys began to ask me uh, and try to make sense of why Santa was in central Illinois rushing into our mall. I'm not sure why seeing him in the parking lot prompted so many questions when they had no doubt probably noticed him in the mall at other times, but um, it did. They wanted to know if Santa was at our mall, did that mean he went to every mall? And how is that even possible? Um, how could he be at all these malls and still be in the North Pole overseeing the elves getting ready for Christmas? And about that, how did Santa travel all over the world in one night? And how did he even get to our mall? There were no reindeer in the parking lot. They didn't see any chauffeur elves about. To all of these questions, I gave my standard Santa Claus answer, which was to exclaim, I don't know, it's a mystery. How do you think he does it? Well, this was not at all satisfying to their tender investigative journalist ears. Consequently, they moved away from the logistics questions to the motivation question. Why does Santa fly around the world and deliver presents to the children? Now, this one felt like a bit of a softball question that maybe I could give the boys more than the standard mystery answer, and I uh, could give them a little something more substantive. So I told them, because Santa loves children and wants them to be happy. They cross-examined me, but he only gives presents to good children, right? But I was not falling for that trap again. You see, I had spent a long time, one summer evening the previous summer, trying to talk one of my sons off the ledge, when out of the blue, he had sadly told me that he would be getting no Christmas presents because Santa wouldn't think that he was a good boy. I had tried to assure him to really limited success that he was a good boy. So then I had, had to explain that Santa knows that all children are good and that he was, that he would get, um, that he loves all of them and he gives presents to all children. At that point, my son wanted to know even the boy down the street Yes, even him, though he was not always nice. So this time at Christmas, when they asked me that, I wasn't about to say just the good children. I said, no, all children, but my sons were ready for me. That led me directly into another trap. If Santa loves all children and brings them all presents, then why didn't Santa go to their friends, Max, Sophia, and Hannah's house? Now, here's the thing you need to know about Max, Sophia, and Hannah. There are no more well-behaved, sweeter children in the world than the three of them. So there was a real problem. If he loves all children and brings them all presents, why would he miss those three most beautiful children? So, okay, I thought, I can handle this. I said to them, Santa knows that Max, Sophia, and Hannah are Jewish, and they don't celebrate Christmas. Being a kind and culturally sensitive person, Santa does not bring them presents out of respect for their faith and their religion. What, they said? Why don't Jewish people celebrate Christmas? 
was incredulous. Oh no, here I was, the place that I, a Catholic in culture only, one time atheist, another time primarily agnostic, Buddhist enthusiast, philosophy major, did not want to be. I wasn't prepared to take sides between Christianity and Judaism. Therefore, I did what that philosophy major and the law school education that followed trained me to do. I objectively presented both positions to my then six-year-old sons so they could figure it out for themselves. I explained that some people, like their gran, believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Other people, Jewish people included among them, did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus, so Jewish people don't celebrate Christmas. Nice and clean and clear, right? But what does Santa have to do with Jesus, they wanted to know. Now, I don't know if any of you here on this call know the answer to that question, but I do not. But I am not a quitter. So I gave them what I thought was the most logical answer. Jesus loves children and believes that they're all inherently good. He and Santa have that in common. Hence, Santa delivers presents to children on Jesus' birthday. Whew, we made it, right? There'd be no more questions. Oh yes, we were just getting started. Next, they wanted to know, well, why don't Max, Sophia, and Hannah celebrate Easter? Now, if I didn't want to get into the question of whether Jesus is the son of God, you can imagine how little I wanted to tackle his crucifixion and resurrection. But again, not a quitter. And so I thought I felt like it was a little bit on a roll, so I, I ventured in. Um, my sons knew about Martin Luther King Jr. and his assassination, so I felt like I had something to work with here. I explained to them, still, by the way, driving that dang loud minivan with them in the back, that there are people who come into the world and try and make it a better place. They fight for others who are mistreated and who aren't given the same rights and privileges. And those people, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus, challenge the power structures. And those in power are threatened by that. And sometimes they kill those very good people. I told my sons that Christians believe that Jesus came back to life after he was killed and that the Easter is a celebration of that. By this time, I am very uncomfortable and did not want to be grilled about whether Jesus could actually come back to life, uh, all the details of the resurrection. So I am lurching ahead in my mind, trying to figure out what I'll say when those inevitable questions come. I'm trying to think what rabbit can I pull out of my hat to answer those questions when a rabbit comes to my rescue. The Easter Bunny. One son asks, what does the Easter Bunny have to do with Jesus coming back to life? His brother quickly follows up with, and why does the Easter Bunny hide eggs? Ugh. Quickly deciding against a deep dive into pagan celebrations, I mentally begin to construct a more uncomplicated answer about spring and rebirth and celebrating new life. When I'm jolted out of these mental gymnastics, one of my sons is loudly and excitedly shouting, wait, 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 I have an even bigger question. Whatever happened to that pizza delivery guy? And to that, I answered, it's a mystery. Oh, Catherine, that is like a cross-section of America and Americana. That was brilliant. And I love your analysis of the power structure and comparison. That, is, that was just fabulous. What great kids you have. Yes, they are wonderful kids. And um, if I have any bit of advice, don't talk too much to your children when they're young. They'll just ask lots of questions. 
Lead they yourself. ask such brilliant questions. <laughs> They're good boys. They're 15 now. Right. Still believe in Easter Bunny? <laughs> no, they were never fans of any of that. Uh, Tooth Fairy, <laughs> they were very suspect of it all. Oh, really? That's a money-making venture. They missed out on that one. You can suspend all disbelief if there's if there's a financial gain in it. <laughs> Not these guys. Uh, well, it's like it's why most of us make our first communion and confirmation. It's because there's big money there. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Apologies to the theologically minded. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much. That was brilliant. So I'm going to ask a small favor. This is a bit cheeky on my part, but if you could give us a rating or even better, a review, sympathetic, hopefully, on one of the pod, wherever you get your podcast. That would be very helpful. It helps get us noticed. And hey, maybe this time next year, I'll be telling you about our 5 million downloads of um, the 10 by 9 podcast. And we haven't seen him for a little while. We are delighted to have him back. It is the wonderful Richard O'Leary. My earliest childhood memories of Christmas are of Christmas in Cork. And those memories were not of Jesus, but of Santa. We did love Jesus in Cork, even if Christian evangelists from North came South to Cork to tell us otherwise. But it was Santa who I first fell in love with. In December 1971, age seven, I wrote a letter to Santa. And me being me, I managed decades later to retrieve from Santa that same letter. Here it is. The address is written in bio in my mum's handwriting, which suggests a seven-year-old me hadn't yet learned how to write addresses. 2nd of December, 1971, Lee wrote Cork. I wrote in pencil. Dear Santa, I like the garage you gave me last year. Thank you. I would like you to bring me a farm set for Christmas. From your dear friend, spelled F-R-I-N-D, Richard XXX. Santa did deliver the farm set. You may be wondering how I came to retrieve the original letter I sent to Santa. Fast forward 31 years to 2002. After my mom died, I went through her personal papers. There I found my 1971 letter to Santa. That's when Age 38, I finally learned the truth about Santa. In 1988, when I was age 24, I came north to live in Belfast. That was when I actually got to meet Santa. Let me explain. In Belfast in 1988, I met a man, a local man, and he was quite nice. Actually, he was very nice. Even he was from Belfast and Protestant. He told me that he once worked in the Department of Social Security, the DSS in Northern Ireland. In the DSS, he was responsible for giving cash payments to the poorest families in the city. Being a kind man and a Christian, he made generous payments to as many poor families as he could. His boss at the DSS was none too pleased, and he was given the nickname Santa. Didn't I fall in love with Santa, my Belfast Santa? And Santa fell in love with me. My Santa's real name was Mervyn. Didn't I tell you he was Protestant? One year at Christmas, Santa, I mean Mervyn, gave me a present. 
he knew I liked farms. So he gave me this present. It's a book called Farm Boys, Lives of Gay Men from the Rural Midwest. No, not gay men from County Tyrone, not the Midwest of Northern Ireland, the Midwest of the United States of America. On the cover, there's an American farmer forking hay. It must be very warm because he's taken his shirt off. Excuse me, it's not that kind of book. Inside, there are real life stories like this one by Everett Cooper. I'll read an extract. My father was a part-time pastor. Our home and church life was very fundamentalist, evangelical. A favorite topic was, he that looketh on a woman and lusted after her in his heart has already committed adultery. So I made good and sure that I wasn't going to happen to me. When I was 15, we were at my grandma's and there was a report about gay men in a park in California. The family got all up in arms saying, kill the perverts. Everett eventually married twice before he was accepting that he was gay, coming out and entering into a relationship with a man. At that time, I asked Mervyn, did all of the churches teach that the gay people were bad? Mervyn replied that officially all churches were anti-gay, but there were a few individual clergy who said gay people were just lovely. Moving on 20 years to the mid 2000s, when Mervyn and I attended a gay faith group. In 2007, our group approached All Souls Church here in Belfast. Their minister, the Reverend Chris Hudson, allowed us to come together in public in his church and hold an LGBT carol service. I kept a souvenir of the event, the service sheet from that first public LGBT carol service, Thursday the 13th of December 2007, Community Christmas Carols by Candlelight. The Gathering Gay Spiritual Group welcomes you all to All Souls Church. On the service sheet, it says the lessons were read by a Peggy, a Robert and a Richard. That was me. The music was provided by an LGBT choir called Choir, Q-I-U-I-R-E. I can't recall if Jingle Bells was played in the church, but I know that night I felt loved by a community. This being Christmas time and panto season, we can't let the story continue without a villain of the piece. After successful LGBT community carol services in 2007 and 2008 in Belfast, didn't I think to myself, why should Belfast keep such a great idea to itself? So I was involved in bringing the idea to my hometown of Cork. To an LGBT affirming church, a Protestant Church of Ireland church in Cork, St. Anne's Shandon. It was the 17th of December, 2009, when I took the train from Belfast to Cork. On arrival in Cork, 
my dad collected me and we stopped off at Wilton Shopping Centre. At the shopping centre, they definitely were playing jingle bells repeatedly. My dad asked me to pick up for him a copy of the weekly Cork paper, the Cork Independent. I picked up the copy of the paper. I glanced at the headline. Holy shit, we'd made the front page. It reads, Cork Independent, Thursday the 17th December 2009. This is crossing the line. Presbyterian minister denounces LGBT carol service. The Reverend John Farris of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Cork, a conservative Presbyterian clergyman originally from the North, he had condemned this gay Christmas get together by LGBT Christians. My dad was a conservative Catholic. I knew I just couldn't let him see this front page. I feared he might make some negative comment about homosexuals. Needless to say, I wouldn't be telling him that I was one of the ringleaders of the LGBT carol service. The irony was that having come out to my conservative father 20 years earlier as a communist and agnostic, I was now hiding from him that I was sneaking off to a church and a Protestant church to boot. I attended that first Cork LGBT carol service at St. Anne's Church Shandon on the 17th of December 2009. I can't recall if Jingle Bells was played in the church, but I know I felt happy that this celebration had taken place. Happy Christmas to you too, Reverend Farris. This year, because of COVID-19 restrictions, we will not be able to hold our annual LGBT community carol service in Belfast, Dublin and Cork. However, we can still celebrate by telling and listening to stories of Christmas's past. Oh, Richard, thank you so much. That was prop-tastic. I think that is your finest collection of props yet. A letter to Santa, I mean, that is incredible, brilliant. Very impressed. And uh, your description of Mervyn was, was fabulous. So what have you, I, I like your Gansey, by the way, very festive. Yes, and in the cork colours. Oh, of course, yes. Might want to explain what a Gansey is to our overseas. Um, a, a jumper. Yes, and that. <laughs> oh, sorry, you go, you, you go. Just before I started my story, my landline rang, uh, and my mobile rang, and I just have to go and pull out the phone. It doesn't work. I mean, this has never happened to me before because I've moved room because it's so cold. Oh, brilliant. Uh, that is a pro. You see, that to me, what you're wearing is a proper Christmas jumper because these modern day Christmas jumpers, they didn't exist when we were young because you couldn't possibly afford to have a jumper that was could only be worn for a couple of days. Paul, you and Derry had jumpers. God, you were really <laughs> well off. <laughs> yeah, but they were knitted by, you know, aunties and grandmas and all that sort of awfulness. Nowadays, Podrick's doing the knitting. Just so everybody knows, all the stories go up on our YouTube channel. So if you get a chance, go check out our channel. All of our Zoom events are up there. They're all in bite-sized chunks, so it's not like you have to sit through the whole thing. And there's a few little extras on there as well, including a wonderful recipe from Podrig for a lovely winter warmer soup. 
So I wish you all a very happy holiday season, happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, whatever it is that uh, is, is working for you. Um, thank you. So um, thank you very much, everybody, for all your friendship and love and stories and listening over these um, strange months that we've all been in around the world of lockdown. So we look forward to being back with you in 2021 when, please God, there'll be more opportunities to meet in person. Like Paul said, we'll keep um, some 10 by 9 going on Zoom anyway, um, even post-vaccine and post-health. Stories are only made by being listened to and by being told. We love stories and we're thrilled that so many of you come along. Thank you so much. Um, that's us. We're done and we'll see you in 2021.